Welcome to House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. If you're ready to get your physical, emotional, and spiritual life in order, join us for the next hour as we meet some interesting people who will share stories of success and wisdom that you can apply to your own life. Now, here's Dr. Connie. Welcome back, everybody, to Dr. Connie's House Calls. This is my monthly show. Yes, we know it's that time of month. Every third Thursday of the month, I call it my form of radiotherapy. It is my alternative to what we hear every day on the news, and it's the news that I want to share with you that's positive, that's refreshing, that can do something with your life, and hopefully touch you in one way. So I'm really honored to be here in studio and, and have this opportunity to share things from my life and also guests who are incredible people who are role models in many ways. But let me go back to last month briefly. Last month, the month of June, we celebrated Father's Day and we honored our dads and what a tough job it is being a good father. And I mentioned briefly my father, Angel Mariano, in that show. Well, since that show last month, he passed away on July 5th. His funeral is this Saturday, which would have been his 94th birthday. And when I was with him the week that he passed at home, it gave me a lot of time to think about mortality, about dying, about the impact of our family on our lives, about aging and death. And I know this is sort of a bummer of an opening monologue, but I just want to share these things because they apply to all of us sooner or later. And as I look back at my dad's life, I, I'm actually preparing his eulogy because I will have the honor of presenting that. I realize he had served as my inspiration throughout my entire life. I write about him in my memoir, The White House Doctor, that was published eight years ago. And I look at his life as a tremendous lesson to me and to other people. First of all, one of the lessons he taught me was this, that adversity provides you opportunity. And the, the reason I say that about my dad, he was born in the Philippines in poverty. Uh, his parents were dirt poor. He was the second oldest of seven children from the first set of kids that my grandfather had. His mother died when my father was 11. My father saw his mother bleed to death in their bamboo hut home, giving birth to her eighth infant. And his maternal, his maternal grandparents took him and his siblings in. His youngest brother was about 14 months old at the time. And my grandfather, who would sew this, uh, was a tailor on the island of Corregidor for the American soldiers, went back to Corregidor a few months after his wife's death and then brought back a young bride and said, I brought you a mother. I brought you someone to take care of you. And nine months later, she gave birth to the first of seven more children. So we have the, sec the first seven and the second seven, of which the first seven children of my father's clan were boys. There were five boys, two girls. All five boys joined the US military in the 1940s and 50s. And what's typical of a Filipino family, when you have a job, you send money home to your parents. So my father and his brothers sent money home, US money home, to their dad, who put through college his children from the second set. So my father grew up taking care of his parents, taking care of his siblings. And so he always served, he always helped out others. And when he joined the Navy, he joined as a steward because in those days in the 1940s, the arrangement between the US government and the Philippines was that if you're a young 
Filipino uh, servicemen uh, joining the U.S. Navy, you became an American citizen. And you were a steward or a mess specialist, as we call it. You served in the homes of admirals. So my father learned the service industry very early on. He served in the homes of seven admirals. And I think one of the highlights of his life was when I was promoted to admiral while I was at the White House. And I, was, I had the honor of becoming the first Filipino-American admiral in U.S. history. And I remember that ceremony in the state dining room of the White House. We had it on a stage under the beautiful portrait of Abraham Lincoln looking down as though he were looking at us. And President Clinton and Hillary Clinton were standing behind me because they were in off. He was in office, and my dad came up to place one of my shoulder boards on my shoulder, and his hands were trembling because most of his career he was putting shoulder boards and preparing the uniforms of the seven admirals he served. So he had an amazing 30 years of active duty. He rose to the rank of Master Chief E9, and I think part of his whole life's success that allowed him to live so long was he was so driven by purpose and service. And the other thing I talk about, you know, I think now, he would always say, your mother, I miss her so much, she was my inspiration. And I look back at my parents, in a lot of ways my mom was the inspiration, but my dad was all about perspiration. He said, you know, if you really care, do something. Don't just talk about it, do something. I also look back at his tremendous Catholic faith in raising us. He was all about prayer, about the Catholic Church and how important that was, the family ties and respect towards our elders. He was about humility and he was about gratitude. So I think about him, I dedicate this show to him and I know he'd be particularly touched because my two guests today are people, are men of the U.S. Navy, career U.S. Navy officers who served, who served not only the military, but who served taking care of others. And when they left the military, retired honorably, they went on to serve, one served in the university setting, and the other hopefully will serve in Congress and will serve us here in Arizona. But I really makes makes me think back about life in general. And and I and you know, my kids will say, Mom, well, okay, you're telling me this. What does this mean to me? And and the audience will say, well, okay, so what does this apply to me? Well, sooner or later, we're going to lose our parents if we haven't done so already. Sooner or later, we're going to pass on. And so I ask people out there, do you have an advanced directive? You know, my dad and mom prepared. They, about 32 years ago, bought bought their crypt where they wanted to be buried and it sort of scared me about they were they were talking about their eternal condos they specified who they wanted to be notified where they wanted to have the reception how they wanted to be dressed in their casket and so on so you know for the audience do you have plans about what you want done when you pass do you, do you leave it to your kids to decide? Because that's such a painful thing for your children to say, we've lost mom, we've lost dad. No, what do we do? What would they wanted us to do? But even before you get to the passing, what about in your old age, if you're disabled, who's gonna take care of you? One of the things that a friend of mine told me who's in the stock market industry, and who's actually writing a book about it, is the fact that baby boomers think their money's gonna last forever. And he said, they're in for a rude awakening, that we're gonna come to a point that we're gonna live so long that all the money we saved, we're gonna use it up. So what do you do about that when you run out of money? And I've seen it in my practice where I've had patients use all the money they had saved 
just for living a, a nice lifestyle and had to move away or downsize and move somewhere else because they couldn't afford to live long. So how are you preparing for old age? What are you doing about it? So I will have another show in the future where we, we go through that and think about more, more about it. But I want to move on to our, our show today, and that's really about serving others, but serving others through leadership. You know, we talk about servant leadership, but I think that the guests who I have today in a lot of ways exemplify leadership, service, caring for people. And I think it's so refreshing nowadays because you hear about corruption, about people with ulterior motives. And I look at my friends in the military as people who will die for their country. And you know, you ask anybody running for office, hey, would you die for your country? Would you actually die for your country? Would you die for your company? And that's something to consider. So for today's show, I am honored to have in studio retired Rear Admiral Richard Dick Reidenauer, who used to be, actually was a former guest of my show, and I will probably invite him and his beautiful wife Leslie back for future shows because he's a font of wit and wisdom. Probably one of the smartest guys I know. He, uh, I'll give you a little bit more about his background in a second. I also have in studio for the first time retired Navy Captain Steve Ferrara, who uh, I'll give you his details as a board-certified interventional radiologist who is running for Congress here in Arizona. And so, and there are a lot of questions that come up about why someone, a successful doctor, retired naval officer, would want to run for politics in this day and age. But let me start off with my dear friend, Dr. Dick, Dr. Reidenauer. When I asked him to send me an updated bio. He handed me, he had to come to my office because <clears throat> the, uh, the file was so huge, it, it wouldn't make it through my server. And it's just several you know, pages long, but he's a very accomplished, board-certified psychiatrist. He, uh, I knew him when I was an intern at Naval Hospital San Diego in 1981. He was interviewing the interns, he was sort of the coordinator for the internship group. And then we reconnected when he came back to San Diego Naval Hospital as a commanding officer, and then connected again when he was commanding officer of Bethesda Naval Hospital when I was at the White House. And he was an amazing help to us at the White House during the hospitalizations of the vice president and the president and all the craziness at the time involved with that. And then after he retired from an incredible career, well-decorated career in the U.S. Navy, he became the president of Marion College. Notice that it's not Mariano College. <laughs> I, I was his speaker at his inauguration for that event. And I said, if you look at the, the name Marion University, <clears throat> University of Marion College, if you add an O, onto that, it becomes Mariano. And he's, he's sitting behind me and says, well, if you contribute more money, we can change the name. So he's just a great fundraiser. So when I asked Dr. Dick to send me an updated bio, he says, ah, you don't want to deal with that. Just tell them I'm a good guy, that I'm a great doctor, a good friend, I'm a wise guy. I mean, I'm just all those good things. So we put that in our remarks that he's just a great friend, a great leader. In studio is really his amazing partner for life, Leslie, who is a an incredible woman, an, an accomplished woman, and 
you know, any woman who, any person who is a military spouse, kudos to them. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Steve's wife, Elizabeth here, who is an active duty pediatrician, still on active duty, as well as, you know, your children are still, you know, we talk about that. So, but these are all amazing people. See, the energy level is very positive and high here. But l let me welcome Dr. Ridenour, Admiral Ridenour to studio again. Welcome back, Dr. Dick. Thank you, Connie. So as I look back at your incredible life, and you're not done yet because you've got a lot of energy in you, you retired from an amazing career in the Navy, you're a wonderful psychiatrist, and you went from military leadership, and you went to academia. How did you wind up in academics as, as a college president? Well, as you remember, um, at Bethesda, it was a huge teaching institution, so I was I, we, we had a lot of academia going on with all the interns and residents and uh, training at every level in, in uh, corpsmen, uh, every kind of specialty, x-ray technician, everything. So the hard part about making that transition is getting the civilian community to understand um, the transference. And, you know, leadership is leadership. I, I don't really care whether it's a company or the, 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 the basics are, are the same. And uh, so I, w I decided I wanted to get out of medicine, having been in it all my life. And I, I talked to Leslie about it, and she didn't think I was crazy. A lot of other people thought I was crazy. Oh, you'll never, you know, stay in medicine. You know, you'll never, the academicians will never, they'll never accept you. And the secret is finding a place that needs you, that you need, that you fall in love with, and uh, going from there. Well, how long were you at Marion? Uh, we got there in 97 and left in 2007, so about 10 years. That's a, is that typical for a college president, university president, to stay that long, a tenure? When I got out, the average tenure for a college president was between six and seven years. Six or seven, so you went to 10. I went, I went longer than that, but uh, it, and it, it's the most difficult job I ever had. What's the hardest part about it? Raising money. Oh, man. Because you don't have to worry about it in the military because they don't give you any money. They yeah, do more with less. That's true. So uh, how, do you, how do you do that? One, well, as an aside, one of the interesting questions, <clears throat> the tough question, the toughest question that I was asked when they were interviewing me for the job was, what, you know, what makes you think you can handle a $134 million budget, which was the budget in the college, and raise money? And I, I looked at him and I said, well, at Bethesda, my bar budget, not counting the salaries of the people that worked there, which I wasn't responsible for, was a quarter of, was a, quarter of a billion dollars. And I could go to jail if the budget didn't match. And I doubt if I'll have to go to jail unless I do something bad at, at Marion. Uh, and raising money from Congress without being able to raise money from Congress for the things we needed and the Navy needed, because you couldn't really talk about it and you couldn't talk with your patients about it, but you somehow had to get the idea and be positive about it. And so they seemed to buy it, and we had a good time. You know, I think in a lot of ways this, is, this show is well-timed because of your experience with Washington, particularly that, and I, and I think it's of interest because our, our guest later today, Dr. Ferreira, who's running for Congress, wants to go back there, which I think he needs a psychiatrist, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. But from your experience, when you were commander of Bethesda Naval Hospital, you dealt a lot with Capitol Hill, with Congress. What kind of things did you experience with them? Well, let me, let me start by saying that I, my sort of definition of leadership yeah. is you look in the eyes of your people, which the congressmen do when they come back, go back and forth, and back, but would you, you look into the eyes of your people every day and you let them look in your eyes. 
and there's a mutual trust both ways and there has to be a vision that's a shared vision between you and your constituents or you and the people of your command. If you do that, you can be successful and if you don't take yourself seriously but you take your job seriously and your title and your responsibility seriously. And the biggest thing I saw in Congress is that often lots of people who had been there a long time had lost sight of that, in my humble opinion, over the years. Um, it was interesting in, in dealing with whether it was the president or a congressman, people who came to um, Bethesda or Walter Reed or wherever, who were not comfortable with the military, had a lot of sort of, we, we don't know what this is all about, is the care really going to, by the time they were finished, they were in love with what we were able to do for them. And the other thing is the privacy is amazing. That you amazing. Get, I don't think you can, the people we had there when we had them, international, international leaders. Nobody uh, knew. Nobody ever nobody knew. Nobody leaked. Yeah, it was, uh, leaking was not, uh, because we all shared the vision of our mission together. Well, that's because I really believe you're a great leader for that. Absolutely. We're going to go to a little break here and Here's then come back again with Dr. Admiral Ridenour. A few more talking points about life in the kill zone in the Beltway. And then we're going to introduce our special guest, Dr. Steve Ferreira, who's running for Congress. So stay tuned for more on House Calls. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the president of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families, Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano, this is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. We're interviewing today Dr. Richard Reidenauer, who was former commander of Bethesda Naval Hospital, had a very incredible career as a Naval Officer Medical Corps and then retired to become president of Marion University. And Dr. Reidenauer was talking about his definition of what makes a good leader. And I think it's worth repeating again what what you consider. What what does it take to to make a good leader? Oh, thank you. I, I think it's very simple, but hard to do. First of all, you look into the eyes of your people every day and you let them, just as important, maybe more important, look into yours. Then you have a mutual trust and a shared vision. And finally, which is maybe the hardest of all, you take your job, your mission seriously, but not yourself. You know, you and I being admirals in the Navy, you have to remember that when people salute you when you're walking down the street, Mm -hmm. it isn't you they're saluting, Mm -hmm. it's the rank. Mm and what it represents, and all the people that it represents. I think if you keep that in mind. I think so, you gotta rise, right. rise above it. You gotta be beyond that, you know? It's not about you. Because if you think it's all about you, that's where, that's where you lose. And I think of people like you and, and Dr. Ferreira here who are, are giving back, who really are. And, it's, and nowadays when you hear, hear people who get everything they can out of the system, it's disappointing, and I think the other thing that comes to mind is we don't have that many heroes nowadays. I think a hero is when someone says hero, I think of the people in uniform in the military, the armed forces. I think of firefighters. I think of rescue teams who really will die. I mean, how many people have jobs that, you know, at your desk, you might die today at your job. Would you be willing to die for that cause of your company? The people that I served with, the corpsmen who went with the Marines, when I was the medical officer of the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War, those people were heroes. I mean, us docs, we were rarely in harm's way. Yes, there have been many since, there have been many before in different wars, but for those of us who are mostly hospital-based, we're not heroes. We served heroes, and uh, we were proud of it. And I, I used to like to think that when my fellow Marine generals uh, that I served with were putting on their uniforms, and we all stood on the stage together, and I had my six medals, and they had their chest full. It was so heavy that I'm not sure I could have stood up under all the weight. It just reminded me of who the real heroes were. So for somebody who's running for office nowadays, what advice would you give them? 
too bad he's not a psychiatrist. That's the first thing. That <laughs> came in handy <laughs> in Bethesda and in D.C. and also at the college. No, I, I would, I would get, I, I don't, I don't think he needs any advice from me, but I would say that he needs to consider whether he wants to be, and we talked about it earlier, whether he wants to be, what kind of leader he wants to be. Does he want to be a transactional leader or a transformational leader? And just from a, a brief set of conversations with him, I have a feeling I know the answer to that question. Can you, can you describe what that means for well, our audience? A transactional instance? leader is somebody who doesn't like to rock the boat. Some, somebody who likes to keep the status quo, which unfortunately today we seem to be stuck in, especially in D.C. I think that's one of the problems because there's this movement amongst the country that for change and there and a transformational leader is somebody who wants to make a difference, who is not afraid to rock the boat, uh, who who has a vision and a mission, and whose job is to get the rest of his group or their group to buy into it, to move forward, and to make positive change. So. Your career, you know, I look at you as the naval officer, the leader in the military, the leader, the leader in academia in your university. What's retirement like? What happens after all that? I think Leslie put it best. When we left the Navy, Leslie said to me, <laughs> makes me laugh every time I think about it. She said to me, if you think I'm standing up when you enter a room from now on, <laughs> which they always did for the Admiral when she was in the room, she had to stand up too. Um, so it, we had, to, I finally retired for the second time and that it didn't take the first time because that's why I needed another job. But the second time when you've done what you kind of want to do and you're never retired, the amazing thing now is I don't know when we got all the things we spend all our time doing now when we did those things before, unless Leslie did all those things that we're now doing together. So I'm enjoying retirement. I don't think every, anyone is fully ever totally retired, and especially if you're a psychiatrist and you have some of the friends that we have. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, but, I'm in, but I'm enjoying, we're, we're, we're really enjoying ourselves. And I'm doing, I'm, I, as you know, I, I had a rather severe set of cancers, uh, multiple myeloma, and, bone marrow transplant, and I do some mentoring of uh, mostly other physicians with the same diagnosis. So you're still helping. So we still, yeah, yeah a little bit. Yeah. We're, we're spending a lot of time taking care of ourselves right now. Well, that's good. Keep, keep, keep doing it. We want you around a long, long thank time. You. Well, thank you, Dr. Ridenauer. You really have been tremendous thank help you, to me. And we're going to bring you back later on one of our shows with uh, have you and Leslie come back when we talk about happy marriages. How many years have you been married now? You better get this right. <laughs> She's looking at I'm him. always I'm always kidding her. Well, we got married in 72, so that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's showing you the numbers. So. so that's 46 years. So what... It'll be 46 in October. So what's the secret to your happy marriage? Uh, I think it's very simple in some ways, but hard to do. Um, we treasure each other. She's She's become my best friend. Uh, truly, and uh, we do disagree considerably a lot, and uh, but we get through it and we talk to each other. Good for you. It's always about communication, isn't it? The and saying yes, dear, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, thank you again. I'm I'm going to now turn to our special guest, Dr. Steve Ferreira, who has an amazing resume. But but as I look through the things he's he's done accomplished, I can't help but notice that we he and I have some parallel 
uh, careers here in the sense that we trained at similar places. He, he's from Arizona. He went to Brophy High School. Where'd you go to undergraduate? UCLA. Oh, UCLA, great school. I went to UCSD. Then he went to my alma mater, the Uniformed Services, University of the Health Sciences, USUHS in Bethesda, Maryland. Although, not that I'm telling everybody I am 14 years older than he, but he graduated 14 years after me. I, we were the class after the Charter Martyrs, so they practiced on us and got it right with your class. Then he went to the Naval Medical Center San Diego for his internship and his residency. That's where I trained as well. They had the best doctors from that institution. Absolutely. And then his fellowship at University of California, San Diego, my alma mater for undergraduate, then went and got his, and he is board certified in vascular interventional radiology, diagnostic radiology, deployed in the Gulf, has done so many things. And Welcome aboard. Welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me, Dr. Connie or Admiral. I'm, I'm glad this is a no salute area yeah, because no as, standing a, up. as a Navy captain, I'm the low man. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all have the first name. It's doctor, right? <laughs> it's doctor. Right. But, you know, you've had an amazing career and you're young. And, you know, when you think of doctors who retire, they usually go to a big institution, make a lot of money, you know, run an institution, do something. But you chose a different path. Can you describe us, to us what happened? Sure. Sure. You know, one of the things I think that sums it up is in our field, we're very blessed. And I tell people, you know, making money is easy, but making a difference is hard. And it was always about making a difference. I joined the Navy. I was at UCLA. I was going to go to an Ivy League medical school. I was in my senior year. The first Gulf War broke out. 1991, I had the opportunity to sort of reflect on my family's history. I really appreciate your story about your family. Uh, my grandfather was an immigrant to this country when he was eight years old. He came here by himself, no family, no parents, no brothers and sisters, didn't know his own birthday, celebrated on the 4th of July. But he built the American dream. He owned a home, became a working class kid. When my dad finished high school, he went and he shortly thereafter, he got drafted to go to the Korean War. So he went was an infantryman in Korea, but that gave him the GI Bill. The GI Bill is what allowed him to go to college. He and my mom packed up the car in Rochester, New York, and came to what was the most inexpensive law school in the country at the time in Tucson. They were trying to bring people out west, so he became a lawyer at, here in Arizona. And then here I was, just two generations from my grandfather, who came to America not speaking a word of English or having a day of school, and I'm going to medical school, I have every opportunity. So when that war broke out, I said, this is the opportunity for me to give back to a country that's been great to me, and I'm just continuing. You got our vote already, you, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's people like you who need to run for office, you know, and that's the thing we see. It's people like you who, in their heart of hearts, this is what they want to do. It isn't for the ego or the fame or the glamour or the perks or the special parking place. It, it's really because you honestly want to give back. You're grateful. I am grateful. You know, this country, I'm... And it sounds, again, it almost sounds cliche these days, but I did spend a lot of time on ship. One of the, I deployed with the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps. I have over a year at sea. So you read a lot. <laughs> so that's what you do when you cross the Pacific back yeah. and forth many times. And I, and I became a student of American history. That's what I decided to read. I always read nonfiction. And, and I just developed a, a love, an affection for our founders, for the principles they believed in. And I wanted to be part of that. And I remember when Abraham Lincoln talked, you mentioned Abraham Lincoln in your opening, you know, he used to say to one of his colleagues that one of the things he was the most worried was that he wouldn't 
make a difference. He would live his life and not have made an impact. Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that really resonated for me because I think that is, I sort of feel the same sense of urgency. And so when I retired from the Navy, I retired on a Friday and I was working at the Phoenix VA the following Monday because they didn't have interventional radiology. Um, I was the Navy's chief medical officer over there at BUMED when the whole VA thing occurred in 2014. And, and so I, you know, when Secretary Shinseki of the VA lost his position and the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Hagel said, gee, do I have those issues? Which we didn't, but I became very familiar with it. But I was also particularly heartbroken because I'm, I was born in Phoenix. I was born at St. Joe's and I was adopted through the Catholic Social Service. And so when I saw that my hometown was the place that where this happened, I really wanted to help. So I came back, I started a cancer program. I started the first clinic because they didn't have interventional radiology there. And, you know, running for Congress is just a continuation. It's just a, you know, a way to, I, I feel like between foreign policy and veterans and healthcare, it's a way to, I have something that I can bring to the conversation. Enlighten us about campaigning because doctor I've I've been uh, watching uh, participating at, at the White House at numerous presidential campaigns and and Dr. Reitner has also seen that as well but tell tell us about what that's like running for office you know it's not like anything I've ever done before um, people warned me I spent a year working on Capitol Hill to kind of dip my toe in the pool I was a National Academy of Sciences health policy fellow so I could see what it was like and one of my mentors told me how hard it was the first time he ran and I said, oh, you know, I've been through internship and residency. I can manage it. And now I'm doing it. I've been about a year into it. And it is. It's a grind. Um, but you know what? You get to meet. I meet so many people that I would never have otherwise met because your your orbit, your radius just expands. You know, there's 700-some thousand people in CD9, my, the district I'm running in. I wish I could meet every single one of them. That's probably my biggest disappointment in a modern political campaign is I can't talk to every single person because that's the rejuvenating part. Um, And I think the, the training pipeline for physicians is actually good training ground because we're used to doing something in the long view. You know, the difference, you know, four years of medical school, internship, four years of residency, then fellowship, you know, it's 11 years after college to get to do what you finally want to do. So again, I think that sense of deferred gratification, that sense of hard work and keeping your eye on what the real purpose is, is translates really, really well. You know, you bring, one of the things that you brought to my mind is how many physicians are there in Capitol Hill? How many do you remember? There's only 10. Really? 10 in Congress, three in the Senate. And what is everybody else? An attorney, right? Mostly attorneys. <laughs> a yeah. lot of talking. A lot of Doctors talking. Doctors, unless you're a psychiatrist, you usually are doing things. And uh, you're, yeah. well, you're doing something, too, <laughs> as a psychiatrist. There's a look on his face. But right. w- when you campaign, what, what type of things surprised you about campaigning when you were out there on the trail? You know, um, you do get, you, you get, asked all kinds of questions, stuff you, you know, you would never expect. Um, What's the wildest know, question they've you know, ever asked you? <laughs> you know, why don't penguins fly? Uh, <laughs> you know, you got to be too heavy. You got to be ready for anything. <laughs> You're kidding. They ask you that? <coughs> you get, you would be amazed. Um, <coughs> but it's fun. You know, it's the tapestry of our citizenry that you get, you know, and you, you belong to the public. And you, one of the things I think if you, 
you know, go into this endeavor without feeling like you are turning yourself. It's really a vocation. You know, I was raised Catholic as well. And I think, you know, you think about the clergy and so forth. You think mm-hmm. it is a vocation. You've given yourself to the public and that's what you have to expect. And they, they have the opportunity to ask you any question they want, anything they want. Um, I have open houses at my house every month for oh, the wow. past year. God bless you. And just let the public come. Come to my house, see the dog hair. So you, you, you get a big turnout when people come? Or they? I do. You know, and they and they li- and the thing is they're astonished because I used to, like, I started out going, oh, grill hot dogs and hamburgers. It became too much. I couldn't keep up with the grill work. So <laughs> now it's mostly cookies and, and lemonade. But, um, you know, people, you can't fake it for a year. You know, you, you have to be authentic. People, in, in the American people, one of the things I love about our country um, is people are, are very optimistic. They, they, they believe, you know, they, they just want to know that you're a regular person, that you're relatable. Mm-hmm. So when they have access to you and they can meet you, it doesn't actually end up mattering that we don't agree on every single thing because people realize that's not possible. Mm-hmm. But they just want to know that, you know, how you, how you think through problems, that you're honest, that you're trustworthy, things we've talked about with leadership. They want to know you as a person, right? Right. Well, we're going to go to a quick break. We're going to come back, and I'm going to ask you, what are your campaign promises? All right. So stay, stay tuned. We're going to hear Dr. Ferreira's campaign promises for Congress because I want you all to go out and vote for him. So all stay right. tuned on Dr. <laughs> Connie's House Calls. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the President of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families. Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano. This is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. We all have unique experiences and outlooks when it comes to leadership and team building, yet sometimes we clash, even when trying to achieve the exact same goals. Check out Unleash Your Inner Goldilocks, How to Get It Just Right. Your host is Dr. Cass Henry. A shared journey equals success, and every human interaction has the power to achieve this success by working together. 
Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Steve Ferrara, who is a retired Navy captain, interventional radiologist who works at the VA and is running for Congress. And he was explaining or describing having an open house uh, every, every month mm-hmm. at his home, yep. inviting his constituency in to get to know them and really know them as people and so they can know you. But what can you offer your constituents? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's a few things, and you can talk about it from a policy standpoint or more from a character standpoint, and and I'll, I'll share with you a little bit about both because I know policy is sort of what what people care about, like the what are you going to do for me when you go to Congress mm-hmm. next year, and and you know it's it's I talk about it a lot. I'm a big healthcare person, and I think healthcare is our most important domestic issue. It's 18 percent of our GDP, over three trillion dollars. I meet families every day that are having to make decisions between food, medicine and rent. So I want to try to help make, there's only 10 physicians in Congress, put patients and doctors back in in control of healthcare, make it affordable and make it accessible. And I have a plan to do that, which goes well beyond the scope of this show, but I'm happy to talk to folks about it. Taking care of our veterans and fixing the Phoenix VA. I'm a veteran. I've got skin in the game and I work there. I think that's a pledge we made that we have to do. And supporting our troops and making sure our our country is secure. those are, are, of course, policy things. But I think from a character standpoint and, and those kind of qualities, because I think those are the most important because they transcend the policy issues. One of the things I say to folks is, you know, we never know when there's going to be a national crisis, and it's usually going to be economic or national security. And if we knew when they were coming, then we might be able to avoid them, but we don't. And so I, I happily say to folks, if the folks that are in Washington right now is the team that you want to have on the field, if there was a really existential crisis or threat to America, then you should revote for them. But if you want to make some substitutions, if this is the time to do that, we get a chance every two years or six years or four years to do that, and that's the time to do that. And then what you're relying on because is, is who, what the person is made of. I'm a servant leader. That's all I've ever done. Um, what really galvanized it for me to run for Congress was when I was in Afghanistan in 2009, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. Um, and, and as uh, the Admiral Reinauer was saying, I had a unique job because I actually did go outside the wire. I went as a very senior person. Um, I went as an Army GMO. So um, I was the same rank as a commanding officer. And so 
Admiral or General McChrystal had just taken over, and and we were doing a lot of missions. And I I said, well, just put me in the rotation. I'll go outside the wire. And physicians were forbidden from going outside the wire, but I was friends with the CO, and I did it. And and when I saw the troops in the morning when they get up, they're putting tourniquets on their arms and legs before we go out on a mission, so that you can apply the tourniquet if an IED, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't be able to do it because of the wound. And you see that kind of courage. And then also when you see folks, you know, sons and daughters of Americans here, given, you know, as you said, risking their lives, would you give your life for your country? And you see them doing it every day. You, re- you know those people need a voice. There are people risking more than reputation, risking more than reelection. And those are the kind of people we need in Congress. And so that's the big picture. That's why I'm going to Congress, and people can rely on that. There's, I think there's three elements of leadership and service. Mm-hmm. There's cognition, so you should be smart enough. There's compassion, and there's courage. And those are in decreasing prevalence. A lot of smart people, fewer compassionate people, and even fewer courageous people. You know, you segue into something I've said and written about. I always say the the three things you need need anatomically to be a good leader, you need brains, you need balls, and you need heart. And you need the nice, you need a balance of those three. So you outlined it more eloquently than I could. (laughs) But absolutely, you have to have those three. Absolutely. I I think that's the key. And, you know, I I, I was thinking about that. I would say that's the three C's of service or of leadership. And and I, I was... Putting that together, I gave a, a, a talk at a national level to a bunch of healthcare providers a couple of years back, and they had just said, "Give us an inspirational talk." You know, no pressure. Like, what do you? So, <laughs> oh yeah, sure. So I'm thinking Tough about audience. that, right? And I'm putting it together. When I I thought I was pretty happy with my little, you know, I said I'm going to go through this, and then it, interestingly, I said I thought to me I had this epiphany that I had just hijacked a literary theme which is the Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> somebody needed a brain, somebody yeah. needed a heart, and somebody needed courage. <laughs> right. Right. It's been and used, I, but that's why it's But you know universal. what? And then I said, so I, in, the, in the talk, it was like a TED talk, yeah. and I put a picture of the, and I said, in full disclosure, I know that well, this isn't an original thing, but I will also submit that the reason any of us will still watch this film, and it stood the test of time, is because those qualities are what are universal amongst us, what we respect, what mm-hmm. we value, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, and you can say, I'm the wizard, and is it, does it matter mm-hmm. whether or not you really give the person that or you make them believe in mm-hmm. that? But at the end of the day, those are the qualities that are in short supply and we need more of. <laughs> Get we back to basics. Absolutely. But, you know, you you're... Uh, you're running at a time when the climate is so different. It's, it's characterized by divisiveness, people being polarized, people are mean and nasty. Uh, wh- what do you think of all this? You know, it's, it is disappointing. Like I yeah. said, one of the things that got me interested in this was a great affection and admiration for our founders who, you know, they looked at working together, which wasn't always easy. Um, you know, as something that was still important. And when I spent that year on Capitol Hill, one of the things I'm very proud of is I was able to co-author legislation that fixed, as you are familiar with, the doc fix, the SGR. So I worked across the aisle, working drafting the legislation with my counterparts on the other side, and we drafted legislation that ended up being a $200 billion item of legislation that passed out of our committee 51 to zero in this climate, 
and then it was signed into law in 2015, and it fixed an enormous problem. For those of us in healthcare, that threatened senior access. At the time, by the time we got that fixed, uh, physicians were would have got about a 25% pay cut on January 1st had it not been fixed. And what they would have done is said, I'm no longer going to take Medicare, which would have caused an enormous crisis for seniors who would have lost their doctors. So it wasn't about, you know, and sometimes I, I won't say that when we sat around that table, we didn't always have spirited discussions about mm-hmm. kind of finding the, the solutions, but we always came back together, just like you do in your relationships at home. Sometimes you disagree. Sometimes you just have to say, you know what, we need to walk away for the rest of the afternoon, but we were always back the next day, and we always worked through it. And at the end of the day, that's what the American people are paying their representatives to do. They're not paying them to go there and pontificate and give speeches. They're paying them to go there and solve problems. We are really, you know, if you look at it, you're, you're interviewing for a job, and, and our job is to hire you. And Absolutely. a lot of people, they get so emotional about it, and they're like, you know, it's almost like you're being... It's a coronation, but you really, every politician is, is really showing us you qualify to do that job, and do you have the character? You right. know, your qualifications, the characters, the things that you can do that. What do you think, uh, let's see, once you get elected, what is your first priority? My first priority is to establish myself in Congress as a trusted and an honest broker, a hard worker, somebody who is here to, again, solve problems and to move the ball down the field for the American people. I mean, and of course, always represent the people of CD9, you know, and that's what I always talk about. That's, those are the folks that hired me. That's who I'm there to represent, all the people of CD9, not just the ones who vote for you, you're there to represent everybody. That's the way our system works. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to Congress, you know, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed that my, mostly my military career and my medical career gave me extremely rich set of experiences in foreign policy and military affairs and veterans and in healthcare. So those are major, major policy issues that are confronting America. So to be able to go there and be a subject matter expert who's honest, who's trustworthy, who's willing to work with people to solve these problems, that's what I want the rest, the other 434 members of Congress to know that I'm somebody that is there to help get the job done for America and Arizona. As I look at you campaigning, obviously you're not campaigning all by yourself. You've got Elizabeth, your wife, you've got your children. Can you talk about the how that works out for you? I mean, she's yeah. active duty. She's she's working in Washington, D.C. right now as, right. as a pediatrician in the, at uh, the Navy Yard there. Right. How does that work for you all? You know, it's that's a great question. And I think I'm proud to say, first of all, we have 52 years of military experience as a couple. We've been married for 23, and between us, we have 52 years of military service. We have spent, we have four deployments. We have probably five or six years separated. And that's what, and, and when I'm elected to Congress, I will be the only military spouse in Congress. Mm-hmm. There are none. Mm-hmm. So I will be the only military, so I will be the one married to the person in uniform. Yeah. I know what military families, and, and that's what, a lot of America, I don't think, I know that people are, are grateful and appreciative of the military, and I, we do appreciate that, but what families, you know, sacrifice each day, and, and you know, I think we set a great example for our kids. Um, they, they see that Elizabeth and I are dedicated to service, we're dedicated to being part of something bigger than ourselves, 
you know, we're the good guys. Yeah, people need to realize that. I think what happens now in this day and age, depending on what news network you listen to, people go with labels and they stereotype them instantly. If they say, if you're running as a Democrat, this is one way, and if you're running as a conservative, this is one way, but they don't really dig into what do you represent? What is your background? Don't label this person. What do they truly represent? What right. can they offer to help this country and to serve? But one of the things you brought up about Elizabeth, the other heroes are really the unsung heroes are the military spouses Absolutely. who have to endure separation and be everything, be both parents to their kids and the hardship. A lot of civilians don't realize that, that you're separated, you're on your own, and that your, your spouse who's away deployed can come home in a, in a body bag, just right. like my cousin did on active duty. Yeah. And so it, it's, a, it's a tough thing and it's a truly a sacrifice. It is, and I'm sorry to hear about your cousin. And well, that was about 10 years ago yeah. in Afghanistan. It's yeah, tragic. That's about when I was there. I was there in yeah. 2009. And, you know, I used to, when I went out on missions in Afghanistan, and I can say I've deployed three times and Elizabeth has deployed, and it's harder to be the one to stay behind. I have the utmost respect and gratitude because when you're deployed, you know you're okay. Because, of course, you know, you know whether you're alive or not. Mm -hmm. That family member, that spouse, and those children are sitting there and, you know, just having to wonder. And when I used to go out on missions, sometimes we'd go out for days at a time mm -hmm. through the Afghanistan terrain. And I would let her know, I'd just say, hey, I probably won't be checking in for a few, I would never exactly say. And for OPSEC reasons and other stuff, I would just say, you know, okay. you won't hear from me for a little while. Right, you know you're and in a hazardous duty area, you can't reveal where you are. But you know, you've shown through your, your courage, your intelligence, your is it brains, balls, and heart, that you truly are a leader by example. Well, thank that, you. That it's in your heart to serve. And I think as I wind down this show, you know, I start off talking about my dad who had that mentality that I'm in this life for a reason, to give, to do something, to make a difference. And I truly believe with your, your background, your family leading you up to this point, humble beginnings, the opportunities you've been given, your education, and your passion to really make a difference. I think you would be an outstanding congressman. So I'm going to endorse you on the Absolutely. I want everybody to go out there and vote for Dr. Oh, yeah. Steve Ferreira. Dr. Reitner is going to do oh, that man. too. Yeah, and I think you would make the difference. If anybody could, you definitely could. And I, I want the listeners to be open-minded, open-hearted. Think of what's at stake <coughs> here. You want our, our country to get better to be on the right track, and you look at the people you vote, and you can really make a difference. Number one, make sure you vote, you go to the polls, but you gotta vote for the people who really will make a difference and think long and hard about it. Any last moment comments, well, Dr. Farah? Well, thank you very much. You know, I, I can't, <coughs> I said one of the hardest things is I don't get to meet everyone, so when I get the opportunity to be on a show like this on your show, it's a way to at least get to connect with people that I wouldn't, may not have otherwise got to meet. So I really appreciate the opportunity. I thank you for your support. Um, it means the world to me. You, you know, you are the first admiral from our university as well, from our medical school. So a lot of firsts. It's a tremendous honor. You serve three presidents. Um, a tremendous honor to be here. So this is really, for me, it's like getting to be at the share a studio with a role model is, is terrific. Um, thank you for your support. And I do ask people, please remember to vote. Democracy, we're, we're only one generation away from losing it. So always do that. We have primaries in August, the generals in November, 
please make sure you vote. It's your most important civic duty. And we'll have it on our website. We'll have it on our website, Voice America, how to contact your campaign. So thank you all for listening out there to Dr. Connie's house calls. Thank you, Dr. Ridenauer, Dr. Ferreira. Vote for Dr. Steve Ferreira in the upcoming primary in August. So take care. Have a great month, and God bless you all. Thank you again for joining us this week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. We'll be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a terrific week.